Well, good evening, church. Welcome back for our Sunday night teaching time. We're in a series on the parables, lessons from heaven for life on earth. And tonight, the responsibilities that come from being a forgiven person. And we don't usually link together responsibilities with the subject of forgiveness. Forgiveness is what you get when you don't meet your responsibilities. So how is it that forgiveness brings about certain responsibilities? That's the story that Jesus is going to tell. Matthew chapter 18, 21 to 35. Get a Bible. Let's study together. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And now the parable, 23. Therefore, so to underscore this idea of forgiveness, Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, here's how forgiveness works in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, forgave him the debt. Wow. 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, grabbed him right around the neck, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. So they saw this first guy being forgiven and then doing this. They were, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? It's a rhetorical question. It's a stupid question. The answer is so obvious. 34. And in anger, notice that there's anger. In his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. Okay, end of parable. Now Jesus makes a statement. And it's a shocking statement. 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Matthew 18, is it's quite a chapter. There are actually two passages about sin and confession 
and forgiveness in this 18th chapter. Jesus gives two teachings um, covering two very different situations. Each kind of centers on a different party. The, the first passage, it's in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. We didn't read that one tonight. It deals with the forced confession of an unrepentant wrongdoer taken before the church. So he's done something wrong. He won't admit it. He won't forsake his sin. He wants to continue just worshiping and singing the songs and taking communion. And he's brought before the church until they bring a confession out of his discipline. The second, that's the one we just read, it deals with the, the free, unforced confession by the wronged Christian. So the first, 15 to 20, deals with the wrongdoer, getting a confession. The second deals with a person who has been wronged and the forgiveness that needs to, needs to be extended. So Peter probably, he listens to Jesus in 15 to 20, talking about how Christians should respond to the sins of others when those sins are not admitted not repented of, not forsaken. And Jesus outlines these specific steps, bring it before the church. They're designed to encourage the guilty to kind of come to their senses. And and people are protected by the presence of witnesses from false accusations and exaggerations. And these words are pretty much known by Christians of all ages. Now, Peter has just heard Jesus talk about this. Guilty person who won't admit his wrong, bring him before the church. Peter's just listened to this, and he has a problem as he listens to Jesus talk about these steps. I mean, these steps, while designed to encourage repentance in the wrongdoer, they don't really deal with the far more common experience between Christian people. How many times, not before the church, but just in my private dealings with Christian people, how many times do I have to freely forgive that irritating person who, who doesn't deny his guilt, he just hurts me in the same way, perhaps over and over again? How many times do I have to freely forgive the person who wrongs me? And, and you get the impression Peter would rather this irritating person would deny his guilt than so Peter could take the offense to the church. But just to forgive an injustice over and over again, privately, how often does that have to happen? How long does this have to go on? Where do my rights not to be a doormat, where do they come into play in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said? It's like this. Proving guilt in a stubborn, thoughtless wrongdoer before the religious authorities, it's far more exciting and invigorating and vindicating than just extending patient, gracious, undeserved forgiveness over and over and over again. I think this passage should also be linked with the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, the two parables, the Good Samaritan 
and the parable of the unmerciful servant, they deal each in turn with the Christian's response to two different situations. The parable of the Good Samaritan deals with how the Christian should respond to someone who has been injured by others. My compassionate heart to those who have been injured by other people, like that beaten Samaritan. The parable of the unmerciful servant deals with how the Christian should respond to injury done to him. Injury done to him perhaps over and over again. And if I get both those things right, how I respond to those who have been hurt by others, the Good Samaritan, how I respond to those who wrong me personally, the parable of the unmerciful servant. If I can do both those things well, I will be going a long, long way to growing as a follower of Jesus in his kingdom. I have five thoughts. One, the first debtor in Jesus' parable had amassed an enormous debt that demanded payment. I get that in 23 to 26. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he, he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so... I guess the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. I see three thoughts under this first point. A, first there's the enormity of this accumulated debt that this servant owed the king. The text puts it at 10,000 talents. Now, scholars quibble over exactly how much this would translate into, in today's terms, no one seems exactly sure, but, but we can get a bit of a picture. We do know that even with the lavish description of all the gold used in the Old Testament in the construction of the temple in the wilderness, Exodus 38, 24 says that only, get this, only 29 talents of gold were used in the whole project. So, so the whole nation of Israel raised that much gold, 29 talents. This one man owed 10,000 talents to his master. The point is, this debt is an unbelievable debt. B, second, I meant to see the unavoidable accountability of this first debtor to the king. It's in that 23rd verse. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared, Jesus speaks, to a king who wished, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Well, I mean, that's the nature of a debt, right? It, it's something that has to be paid. Otherwise, it's a gift, not a debt. Now, true, this man isn't anxious to come and reckon with the king. He was, it says in verse 24, he was brought before the king. Some collectors caught a hold of him, dragged him before the king. He'd gone a long time, probably, trying to avoid that kind of meeting, but he couldn't escape. The debt grew precisely because he hadn't been thinking about it very much. He didn't come willingly. 
He's forced to settle up. And, and the Bible says, remember, Jesus says, this is the way the kingdom of heaven works. It's like this story. And now we see it because the Bible says we all face this time of reckoning. Romans 14, 10, 11, 12. Paul writes, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. Paul says, so then each of us will, each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. There's this time of reckoning. C. Third, the debtor's first response to the king is to state he would personally be able to pay off the debt. Look at, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And, and you just, you have to admire the king for having enough courtesy not to just burst out laughing. I mean, in the history of the universe, has there ever been a more ridiculous promise made? I mean, it's right up there with, you know, the check is in the mail. Is there anything Jesus intends to make more hopelessly obvious in this parable than, than this? This man has no hope to pay back this debt. I mean, if he lived to be a thousand years old and gave the king every cent he ever earned, he couldn't pay back this debt. And yet, somehow, somehow, instinctively working off his debt, it's, it's just the instant reaction of this man to the king. I mean, plainly, it's nonsense. The man knows he's in a hole. He knows he can't possibly get out. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to condemn this debtor's foolishness because, you see, I'm looking at myself in this first debtor. I mean, I'm the one who owes this enormous debt to my creator, my redeemer. I'm the one who stands in this debtor's prison. I'm the one who stands before God, accountable for my guilt. And here's the thing. There isn't a prayer in the world of making good my debt with my own efforts. That's the point. There's absolutely no chance of making things right with my creator. So those are the solutions that will immediately spring to the mind of all decent people when they feel the weight of their sin. Maybe there's people like that listening to me right now. You sense you aren't all that you should be. You, you know that you're made different from the horse fly or the groundhog. You, you know you fail the dictates of your own conscience. You, you sense God by his spirit dealing with your heart. You stand in the hole of your own moral debt before God and immediately solutions spring to mind. That's right. I need to be a kinder person. I need to be more loving. I need to quit swearing. I need to be a better father, a better husband. I really should go to church a bit more. And all those solutions, they echo the words of that first debtor. Be patient with me, God. I will pay you back whatever it is I owe. 
And Jesus, in this parable, it's his own gentle way of saying, Don, don't be ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. You can't work your way out of this. You don't need more time. You need need forgiveness. That's what this debtor needed. He just needed forgiveness. Point number two. Unbelievably, the king forgave his servant's enormous debt. It's in verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant, look at this, released him, forgave him the debt. I I think we're meant to see just the wonderful simplicity of those words. Technically, look at the servant never even asked to be forgiven. He didn't have the nerve. He just said, I'll pay you back. Give me time. I'll pay you back. He doesn't ask for forgiveness because, well, who, who, who could expect forgiveness for such an enormous debt? Who would expect it? But the king, fortunately for this debtor, the king isn't thinking about justice dealing with this servant. He grants what the servant doesn't even dare ask for. There's no talk about eventual repayment. There's no rebuke. How could you get in such a hole of debt? No rebuke. Without deserving one bit of it, without expecting any of it, the slave gets off, free as a bird. And out of pity for him, 27, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. And if you're like me, you read that and you just want to go, thank you, Jesus. Now comes the point of the parable, point number three. This, this forgiven servant, he goes out and immediately he bumps into a fellow slave who owes him 100 denarii. It's in 28 to 30, and this is the punchline of the parable. But when that servant went out, the forgiven one, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And look at, he grabs him, seizing him. He begins choking him. Good thing somebody stopped him. He might have killed him. He begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. This is an unbelievable story. 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. We're meant to see this as the unbelievable part of the parable. I mean, while not insignificant, the debt of 100 denarii, here's the thing, it could reasonably be paid back within about 90 days. So in other words, unlike the first slave's debt, this debt could realistically be paid back over time. All that was required here, even if not forgiveness, was just a little bit of patience. The forgiven slave, he didn't even have to forget about the debt. All he had to do was wait a bit. And what does Jesus want me, Don Horbin, to see? And here's what it is. No sin against me is ever as great as my sin against God. 
you, you would think that would make it easy for us to forgive others, wouldn't you? If I just carried that around. No one will ever require my forgiveness, a greater forgiveness, than I'm required from God. Back to the parable. This forgiven debtor, he won't wait 90 days. He won't wait 90 seconds. I know it sounds unbelievable. Debtor number two gets no grace, no forgiveness. Throw him into prison, he says. And all the angels in heaven gasp as these words pour out from the forgiven debtor's lips. I mean, everybody knows. We, we all know there's, there's something wrong in this story. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a theologian. Something, something just doesn't feel right here. Debtor number two cries out to the forgiven debtor number one and says, have patience with me and I will repay you. Where had the first debtor heard those words before? He spoke them. He said the very same words to his master. And you think, how short a memory can a person have? You'd think he would have heard his own cry being echoed in this second debtor's plea. But he doesn't. What's gone wrong here? How did this emancipated debtor, number one, how did he fail so blindly and so badly? And that goes to point number four. This first debtor with the big debt, once he received his forgiveness, he forgot about his forgiveness. That seems to be the problem, doesn't it? I mean, he just doesn't live like a person who's grateful to have his freedom. He doesn't live like a person who's grateful to get up every morning with this huge debt pardoned so freely. He doesn't live like a person whose life has just been touched by amazing wonder. He doesn't live like a person who once was blind but now can see. Didn't take long for the bloom to go off the rose. Already, he's lost the joy. He's lost the the magic of walking around in forgiven skin. I mean, he'd never say it out loud. But it's almost like, it's almost like maybe he qualified for his forgiveness. Maybe more qualified. Maybe... Maybe Jesus means for me to see how differently I can live my life depending on my circumstances. So, so, so at the very moment I'm on my face before God, bringing him my request, my heart can be intent on receiving his blessings, especially his grace. And then, and then once I've received grace from God's hand and I've moved outside the church walls, I can treat sinners, sinners just like I, sinners who ask, of me, the very same mercy that I've just freely received from God, and I can just want to nail them to the wall. Let's pretend Jesus told the story just a teeny bit differently. Let's pretend 
servant number two comes in and asks for forgiveness while servant number one is still on his knees before the king asking for his forgiveness. And I'll bet you servant number one would have forgiven servant number two instantly if he was still waiting to hear from the king about his own forgiveness. He'd even give him a hug. I've been kind of reawakened to this parable from the words of uh, Miroslav Wolf. His marvelous little book called Free of Charge, I'd recommend it. Here's what he says. He's talking about this parable, and here's what he says about receiving God's grace. Listen to these words. Quote, What happens to the flow of grace when it reaches us? Does it then stop having just bestowed the gift and fulfilled its purpose? If the flow of grace were to stop, we would only be receivers, not givers. We would then be unlike what is most divine in God. You see, we are not simply the final destinations in the flow of grace. Rather, we find ourselves midstream, so to speak. The gifts flow into us, and they flow on from us. We are simultaneously receivers and givers of grace. We receive from Christ, and we give to and receive from each other. What beautiful words. Those are probing words. So they, they diagnose the cancer that will surely kill debtor number one. His thinking is totally different. After all, He's already received forgiveness, right? Or has he? Look how this story ends, point number five. It's not one of those gentle endings. It's a slap in the face kind of ending. The story of grace has a fearful ending. It's in 31 to 35. We're almost finished. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. Wait a minute, I thought he was forgiven. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And underline these, in his anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. Yeah, but Pastor Dunn, that's just a parable. Look at 35. So also, this isn't parable. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you. In other words, just like this king threw in wrath, debtor number one into prison, so also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I think there's a reason Jesus phrased the plea for forgiveness with exactly the same words from each servant. Every time someone needs my forgiveness, remember Peter's question, how many times do I have to forgive? 
Every time someone needs my forgiveness, I'm supposed to see myself kneeling before my master asking for forgiveness. That's the picture I'm supposed to have in my mind when I have to forgive someone else. I'm supposed to see my own request to God. That's why they're worded exactly the same. I'm supposed to see my own request to God in every request made of me for forgiveness. I'm supposed to see my grace extended as being a tiny, pale reflection of the same kind of grace I received. And the text clearly says, church, listen. This text clearly teaches God doesn't just extend forgiveness. God supervises forgiveness. God watches to see what Don Horbin's spiritual memory is like. He watches to see if I really live in the grace I've received or I'm just a spiritual con artist. So very plainly, this text says, I put my soul on the line every time I'm wronged by a brother and I don't extend forgiveness. It's a dangerous place to live. If the closing words of that parable shock you, they really shouldn't. They're not saying something brand new. They contain a repeated theme in the New Testament and a repeated theme in the words of Jesus in particular. Look at, look at Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Wrapping up the Lord's Prayer. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Notice the ifs in that sentence. Forgiveness is free. It is free, but it's not unconditional. Those words don't mean the same thing. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, and these we wish weren't in the New Testament, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It'd be nice if someone other than Jesus said that. But it didn't come from the lips of one of the Pharisees. So this parable Matthew 18, it only draws out the same conclusion as those famous words at the end of the Lord's Prayer. If my transgressions aren't forgiven by Father God, I'm in trouble. Look at verses 34 and 35 of Matthew 18. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So, it's not to be heard just as a threat. Do, do you want to, do you want to keep your life uh, grace-soaked and clean? Do you want to keep your life free? Do, do you want the deliverance received in God's cleansing, do you want that to grow and flourish and bear fruit in every part of your life? Do you want to know that kind of joy and freedom day by day by day? There's a way to do it constantly, instantly, and as often as requested. Forgive your brother or your sister and do it from your heart and keep your soul out of prison. Never let 
another person ruin your life by making you hate them. And everyone said, I hope, amen. Let's pray. We feel, we feel like Peter, we feel like this, uh, this parable is too big for us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will come moment by moment by moment, little event by little event by little event, help us to walk in the grace received and to extend it in exactly the same way to the same lavish way that we've received it. Keep the joy of the Lord growing in our hearts as we extend your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Don't forget to join us Wednesday nights. It's kind of turned into a neat thing in our church. Little difference, 7 o'clock right here in this room where I'm teaching now. 45 minutes of teaching. There's kids' ministries at the same time. There'll be study notes for everybody. We've had really great crowds gather, and we love to have you. It's not, uh, it's not streamed or anything else. You have to come. Wednesday, 7 o'clock, right here. God bless the church. Love one another.